Hi, I'm Lorna Meehan, and welcome to Rebel Heroines, a podcast celebrating the rebel heroines of the Greek myths through original audio drama, poetry, book and theatre reviews, and interviews with fellow fans and creatives. In this podcast, the stereotypical and somewhat toxic heroes of the ancient world take a step back as we delve into the stories of the women who shaped their destinies. If you like your Greek myths seen through a feminist lens, enjoy creative adaptations of the classics such as the novels of Natalie Haynes and Madeline Miller, and agree that Hollywood hasn't made a decent movie set in antiquity since the original Clash of the Titans, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome to Rebel Heroines, a podcast celebrating the rebel heroines of the Greek myths through original audio drama, poetry, book and theatre reviews, and interviews with fellow fans and creatives. In this podcast, the heroes of the ancient world take a step back as we delve into the stories of the women who shaped their destinies and champion the female authors bringing these nuanced women to life. And a first for the podcast, this month we have our first guest. Mm. The fabulous writer Rosie Garland will be talking to us about her on-theme novel. Exciting! Now, don't get me wrong, I like the guys in Greek mythology too, and the gods. I mean, Apollo's got a lot going for him. God of music, healing, poetry, three of my favourite things. And I imagine Apollo to look a bit like Henry Cavill. So a scantily clad Henry Cavill with golden eyes strumming his lyre. A hell yeah from me. But Apollo is also an out-and-out rapey psychopath who has a very morbid obsession with his twin sister's virginity. So thanks, but no thanks, Polly. You got issues. A quick book review before we delve deep into the women who formed the backbone of Greek mythology. I've recently read Nina McLaughlin's Wake Siren, Ovid Resung, and it's fast become one of my favourite books of this genre. It puts the women back in the centre of their narratives. Sometimes these narratives are set in our modern world, where the gods are still prevalent, still meddling where they shouldn't. Sometimes they're set in a more classical world. And just to say right from the off, it's a tough read in places because there is obviously a lot of rape, sexual assault, taboo sexuality, but it's also powerful, beautiful, nuanced, and most importantly, the women tell you their side of the story. They call out injustice, they form bonds of solidarity, they push back, they tear down their oppressors with words. Interestingly, in the original Ovid, though there is obviously still a lot of rape, in his language, there was no skirting around the word. In a lot of translations since, it's replaced with words like ravaged or seduced. In Nina's book, the women reclaim language. They demand that their abuse is called what it is, 
despite its traumatic subject matter. And I love that she doesn't shy away from that. This book is full of rebel heroines. It's also really funny in places, like when Apollo tries to seduce Daphne with his, hey babe, you into music? Because I invented it. My shaft is sure in flight. I'm not some goat herd. Do you know who I am? Chat up lines. Smooth, Apollo, real smooth. I highly recommend this book, especially if you're new to Greek mythology and find it hard to relate to, because this book in particular feels very contemporary. I'll put a link to a great interview with Nina in the show notes. So this month, we are focusing on a group of women. And though they're a mix of primordial entities, goddesses, nymphs, etc., I thought the simplest umbrella term to cover them all was the titanesses, the women who were around before the pantheon we all know and love slash have a difficult relationship with at times. I feel like the pantheon goddesses get all the attention. So I wanted to do a mini deep dive into the ones who came before them, the ones who paved the way. Let's get straight into it with the first female force to come out of the chaos where Greek myths originated. Nyx, the knight. And with her male counterpart, she made... Himera, who was the personification of day. And in this episode, I'm going to be referring to a gorgeous oracle card deck called the Mythical Oracle by Carissa Melado with artwork by Michelle Lee Phelan. I'm really into my oracle cards and I wanted to use these ones in this episode because I think they give you a great introduction to what these female energies and symbols stood for. Hemera's message is rebirth. You are coming out of darkness, a life-changing period, and bringing that wisdom into your new life. Mm. I liked that because this is the theme for this episode, the wisdom of these female energies and all the facets of life that they cover. Let's skip to the ultimate female force, Mother Nature, Gaia. Gaia is the earth, and before Uranus, the sky coupled with her, she birthed him and Pontus, the sea, all by herself, the first virgin birth. Her and Uranus, Uranus, I really don't know how to say this so it doesn't sound, you know, juvenile. Let's just say Euro. There we go. Her and Euro then go on to have a lot of kids. Some of them Euro likes, others not. And the ones that displease him, the monsters, the giants, they get sent to Tartarus. Pretty shitty of Euro to kill what he perceives as abominations, even though he was half responsible for them. Because Gaia, and this is crucial for me, loves all of her children equally. Here's a snippet from a great poetry book called Great Goddesses by Nikita Gill, preempting the grief of Gaia. Can deities be blessed with eternal happiness? She wondered contentedly, looking at her bright, buoyant family. Can anything in existence? Perhaps this is where the dark thought came from. Would Uranus still love these children if they were not his version of beautiful? And tragedy, who has seen the future, whispered in her ear with necessary cruelty, Take your children and run, my love, 
for my brother Destiny says he will not. And this whole thing sets up what becomes a reoccurring theme of Greek myth, fathers destroying their children for no good reason. And I think Gaia's plight is such a deep metaphor for what I was talking about in the Persephone episode, the damage patriarchal structures are doing to the environment and how the only solution is to take Gaia's attitude All my children, everything, everyone that walks my earth is sacred and equal in my eyes. It can come across later on when Gaia is whispering in one set of her children's ears about overthrowing the other. And before that, when she rallies them to kill their own father, it can come across that she's pitting everyone against each other. But to me, it's her desperately trying to retain balance, to let nature unravel as it sees fit. Gaia's oracle card message is fertility. Gaia teaches us that when we refuse to let go, life ceases to grow. The garden of our lives must be weeded from time to time. Good advice from Gaia, I think. So let's look at some of Gaia's rebel heroine children, the Titans. In the second generation, we have Eos, the personification of rosy dawn that Homer is so fond of. She is the daughter of Hyperion, god of light, and Thea, I think that's how you say it. That's how I'm going to say it. Thea, goddess of heavenly light. There's a titan for every kind of energy force you can think of in Greek myth origin. It can get a bit confusing. But yeah, why I like Eos, she was a bit of a precursor to Aphrodite. She liked to have it off with hot mortal men who took her fancy. She had a shameless sexuality going on. A lot of her illuminating some beautiful man while he's bathing and she'd come down and say, hey, I'm the dawn and you're gorgeous. How about it? Good for her. It all goes wrong for her when she asks Zeus further down the line to make one of her mortal lovers live forever. But she crucially doesn't specify that she wants him to stay the same age. So her lover gets old but doesn't die. And this is a good example of Zeus coming along and screwing up the Titaness's golden age, quite frankly. Eos's oracle message is new beginnings. Start afresh, make plans, hatch ideas. Basically, don't let the Zeuses get you down. There is also her sister Selene or Selene, whichever you prefer. Titan goddess of the moon who has her role taken over by Artemis. And I love that the moon and the realm of night throughout Greek origin is the domain of women. Her oracle message is intuition which is not rooted in logic or cultural thought. It is rooted in the deepest core of your being. Nice. On to three daughters of Gaia and Euro. I'm not going chronologically here because to be fair, Greek mythology doesn't really do coherent chronology. Anyway, I didn't make the rules. Some bloke in a toga did. We have Memon. Menemocene, Menemocene, Menemocene. Who knows how you say that? Not even Stephen Fry knows how to say that word and he knows everything. So Mimi, let's call her, is the personification of memory. And I love in Stephen Fry's mythos, 
which is fabulous. I saw him do it live and he was talking about like Kronos being an emo classic. He says how when Mimi was young, she was very shallow and ignorant because, of course, the world was young. But when the world got older, when she could put her power to use, then, ooh, how much power. Collective memory. That is potent wisdom. Her oracle card message is inspiration. The inspiration you receive at this time comes from a divine place and speaks of truth, not only personal, but universal. Mm. So Mimi is the mother of the nine muses, and we'll come back to those later. We also have Themis or Themis, whichever you prefer, the Titan goddess of justice and natural order. Before the almighty Zeus came along, dealing out judgment with his thunderbolts, justice was the realm of women. And Themis has a sister, Nemesis. Yeah, you know that word. Nemesis fucks you up big time if you mess with Themis. She is the titan goddess of revenge. What a powerful sisterhood. Themis's message is, this is time to get your life in order. Order takes hard work and focus, but is necessary. Justice is not an eye for an eye. It is the natural order of the universe. Themis has spoken. Heed her. Her daughter, Astraea, who took up her mantle, actually abandoned the world when the lawlessness of the New Age dawned, i.e. when the patriarchy turned up and got greedy. Then we've got Metis, Titan goddess of wise counsel and cunning, who helped Zeus overthrow his father, Kronos, who had eaten all Zeus's brothers and sisters. There it is again, that whole men eating their children because of prophecies about being overthrown. Oh, we can't have that. Metis, mother of Athena, though she gave birth to her inside Zeus. Yeah, that's how Zeus thanked her for all her help. He ate her because of that old overthrow prophecy. But it's wonderfully ironic that their progeny was female and ended up being goddess of war and literally hacked her way out of his head with an axe. Good for her. And the interesting link between these three titan goddesses, Mimi, Themis, Metis, they were all wives of Zeus. Before he shacked up with Hera, Zeus was married to women who embodied the transformative and awesome powers of memory, justice and wisdom. And what did he learn from these three powerful women? Apparently nothing. All those opportunities to learn how to be a decent person wasted. And this throws up how before the Pantheon came along, the female forces, the Titanesses, they were on a much more equal footing with their male counterparts. There was Another poem extract from Nikita Gill about the Titanesses called A Titan Sisterhood, I think, explains this in quite a nice, bittersweet way. We built an island when we were young, while our brothers feuded for kingdoms with each other. We stole away, and we know how to love each other. And this is ours, we tell each other fiercely, and we will protect it. 
So why was Zeus such a douche to these Titan goddesses, taking their power away, literally eating them in some cases? Well, for this, let's focus on his mother, Rhea. Rhea was the 11th child of Gaia and Euro. She happened to be married to the brother who Gaia persuaded to overthrow his dad. So Rhea was married to Kronos. And of course, what did Kronos do when Rhea started having babies? He ate them. Of course he did. And by the time her third son came along, she decided enough was enough. She presented her terrible husband with a rock instead hid Zeus away in a cave with her clever friend Metis and primed him for overthrowing his father when he came of age. Rhea, though she had an awful time of it, is also a force to be reckoned with and she really is a pivotal figure where the balance starts to shift, where in order to reassert balance, in order for her to have power over her oppressor, She essentially has to birth another one. She has to hone him for vengeance. She has to prime him for power. And he, for better or worse, to be fair, becomes very good at his job. And yet, Rhea's power endures. Her oracle message is protection. She represents the part of ourselves that cannot bear to deny our natural instincts and propels us to do what we know is right. I love Rhea, not just because she rides a chariot pulled by two lions, which is pretty kick-ass, but because she is also responsible for resurrecting, guess who? Yeah, it's Dionysus time. Rhea puts Dionysus back together when Hera's giants tear him apart. And there's a link forged between them then that endures, and she helps him out many times. There's this pivotal link here where the coming of the Pantheon heralds the oppression of Mother Earth or the female and Dionysus with his form of nature worship essentially picks up the mantle of Rhea, resurrecting her in turn. And this is something I'm exploring in the novel I keep teasing you about, which is based on my favourite Greek goddess, which I still haven't mentioned. And you know what? I'm still not going to fess up about that yet. You just got to wait. So yeah, basically it all goes wrong for the Titanesses, the female energy, the cult of Gaia and Rhea, when new god... Apollo, yeah, him again, turns up, kills the Pythia, who was the serpent guarding the temple of Gaia in Delphi, declares himself in charge. And from then on, people come to hear the voice of the oracle from the mouth of Apollo's priestesses. This guy, man, what a pompous ass. I just want to shake him sometimes and say, dude, look, You're hot. You've got a lot going for you. Do you think maybe the consistent rejection from all your love interests is maybe your problem? You total psycho. And yet the female energy still endures. Some of the other awesome children of Gaia and Euro's union, we've got the nine muses daughters of Mimi and Zeus, and they are crucial in terms of creative inspiration. You've got all the arts covered, dance, music, comic poetry, and most importantly, for the future of Greek mythology, you've got epic poetry in the form of the muse Calliope. 
Just a little side note here. If you like The Sandman, the graphic novel and TV show by Neil Gaiman, and if you've not heard of either, get on that. There's an episode where Calliope, Calliope, whichever you prefer, let's just call her Callie. There is an episode where Callie, who is the former wife of Morpheus, the Lord of Dreams, and Sandman is basically all focused around Morpheus. Her former husband saves her from a very messed up situation where a mortal man finds a way to entrap her and use her against her will. And there's also a lot more Greek myth-inspired goodness in Sandman. Check it out. And you've also got, along with the muses, the nymphs. Lots of nymphs. There's the tree nymphs, the sea nymphs, the melissae, who are the oracle bee nymphs. That's right. Oracle bees. I shall tell you your destiny. Have some honey. Awesome. That would be a great Pixar animation, wouldn't it? Oracle bees. There's probably more nymphs in Greek myth than any other kind of person, creature. I mean, the gods were just breeding hordes of nymphs left, right and centre. They are very low on the pecking order and they tend to be the first to get raped, killed, cannon fodder. But they are nevertheless the custodians of nature. They are guardians. They are wise and revered. They are beautiful and sometimes deadly. You've also got the three graces or charities who are counteracted by the vengeful Irenes, you know, the Furies. Oh, don't kill your mum or they'll be tearing your gizzards out and rightly so. There is a lot of female power going on in the big areas of creativity, nature and prophecy, which brings me to the three most important female figures in all of Greek myth, I think, and leads us nicely into introducing my guest. We have yet to meet the fates, Clotho, Lachesis and Atropos, the daughters of Nyx. Remember her? She was the first and their job is the big job. They weave your life. They literally spin, measure and cut your timeline. And there is nothing you can do about it. Even Zeus, the big I am, can't screw with the fates. With fates, when your time is up, your time is up, bitches. The fates are not to be confused with the three old deers in Clash of the Titans with one tooth and one eye between them. They're the grey eye. The oracle message of the fates, otherwise known as the moray, is dum-dum-dum, that old epic chestnut, destiny, which brings with it unexpected life-changing events in which you will find incredible opportunity. These events can come in the guise of something difficult or painful, but do not be fooled. This is a magical time, a culmination of your life so far. Ooh, powerful ladies. And this segues quite nicely into us meeting my first guest on the podcast. Because she's only gone and written a freaking book about them. 
How cool is that? So without further ado, let's meet Rosie Garland, writing under a new pen name as Rose Blythe. She is a writer and singer with post-punk band The March Violets. She has a passion for language nurtured by public libraries. Her poetry collection, What Girls Do in the Dark, was shortlisted for the Polari Prize and her novel, The Night Brother, was described by the Times as a delight with shades of Angela Carter. Val McDermott has named her one of the UK's most compelling LGBT writers. Her book, The Fates, is coming out next year, published by Quercus Books. Hello, Rosie. Hello, Lorna. It's absolutely brilliant to be here talking about Greek heroines. Yes, wonderful. I'm so excited that you're my first guest and that we have the chance to do a bit of an exclusive for your novel. First off, I'd like to ask you, what got you into Greek mythology and what made you decide to write about it? Let's go back in the misty mists of time, back to my childhood. I was one of those really lucky kids who was read to by my grandmother and she read me fairy stories and myths. I was enthralled. These were these amazing elsewheres and elsewhens where magic just happened. It wasn't um, seen as strange or unusual. It's like magical, things that we call magical or supernatural were kind of woven into everyday life. And there was no distinction between everyday life when you had to go out and plant your crops <laughs> and a god appearing in the heavens and coming down and speaking to you. I always found that a very liberating thing and also found it liberating in my writing, the idea, the concept of the fantastical yet every day. When did you start writing your own stories about this kind of thing? I started writing my own stories when I was very tiny. Being read to, it was a short step to writing my own stories. And I started off by writing for my dolls, would you believe? <laughs> um, and uh, I write a lot of different things. I write historical fiction. I write poetry. I write short stories. But all my novels and a lot of my short fiction are, in fact, my poetry. In fact, all of my writing, Lorna, <laughs> is threaded through with this sense of the magical, the unusual. Mm. Um, this is, however, the first time I've written about the Greek myth specifically. I, I have got three historical novels under the name Rosie Garland, and they're set in the 14th century and the 19th century. This is the first time I've gone back that far in time, and I am loving every minute. <laughs> what was it that drew you about the fates? I was contacted by the wonderful Quercus Books in 2022. And they said, you know, we love your writing of your historical novels. We're wondering if you've ever considered writing a retelling of a Greek myth. And to be honest, up to that point, I hadn't considered it. But they said, well, we've got an idea. We would really like you to write a novel called 
The Fates. So essentially, it was a kind of commissioned novel. And uh, because I'd always had this lifelong love of myth from all cultures from across the world and fairy stories, I, I felt it was a really good fit. And um, so I said, yes, please, dived right in. So that was how it started. I hadn't actually considered it. But once I began, again, I'm using the word magic, but the magic happened. I fell in love with my characters. I got really interested in their lives. Then I started to spin my own stories. And to be honest, if given the opportunity, I'd write another one. Do you kind of know where it was going, like right from the off, or did the end kind of reveal itself as you went along? The wonderful Hilary Mantel once said, the ending is earned by everything that comes before it. And although I did have an idea of the rough direction I was going in, I didn't necessarily know exactly what that was going to look like. Because again, although the lovely people at Quercus had given me a brief, they hadn't told me what the ending was. So that was for me to discover. And I knew when I'd found it, but I did have to, I didn't know it straight away. I knew I was on my way somewhere, but I wasn't entirely sure where it was until I got there. For me, it's one of the most exciting things about being a novelist. It's one of the most exciting things about writing about the fates, because one of the things I found most exciting when I was like diving deep into the myth is that not a great deal is known about them. Um, they're very shadowy and sort of distant. It's like without wishing to tell people what they already know, they are personifications of destiny. They're three sisters, three weird sisters. Got Clotho who spins the thread of mortal destiny from a spindle. And then her sister, Lachesis, measures the thread to decide how long each mortal life will be. And then finally, you've got Atropos with her shears who cuts the thread. But apart from that, there's not a great deal of information about them. Whereas a lot of the other gods and goddesses have got, I don't know, books full of their adventures yeah. and what they got up to. There's only one time in Greek myth where the fates speak to a mortal. And that is at the birth of this Greek hero called Meliga, when the fates are at his birth and tell his mother, your son will die when that log in the fire burns to ashes. Of course, she jumps up and grabs the log to save it and save her son's life. And that's all we know, which is marvellous for me because I yeah, can do a lot of inventing. But I thought, why would they do something that, frankly, is kind of malevolent? It's really cruel and it's it, and taunting of this poor woman who's just given birth. It seems out of character for goddesses that exist out of time. And this is where it all starts for me. I get questions in my head and I have to find answers for them. And that is where the novel began. And that is where the novel hangs. It hangs on what happens to Maliga, what happens to the piece of wood that his mother saves that is basically his lifeline, and what happens to the people that the fates send in his direction, particular the character of Atalanta, 
Oh, I was so excited. (laughs) I loved writing Atalanta. She's um, a hunter and is a Greek hero. And by the by, is the only woman who was ever on the Argo with Jason and the Argonauts. So, and she's quite, she's quite a remarkable woman in her own right. Oh, yes. Jennifer Saint's got that wonderful book, Atalanta, just out, I think. Um, So I can't wait to read that. I was able to create this world where you've got the three fates and why they get involved in this particular human destiny. And there is a reason, although you're going to have to read the book. Why do you think there has been such a resurgence of Greek myth novels over the years? This whole thing of women writing about the women of Greek mythology in this very different way, this very feminist way. Why do you think that's become more of a thing over the years? It's like you've got Pat Barker's amazing book, The Silence of the Girls. You've got um, Madeline Miller's Circe, Jennifer Saint writing Ariadne. I I could go on. Speaking personally, I've always been fascinated, you know, in all my historical novels, I've always been fascinated by the stories that happen slightly over there. Mm. The stories that, you know, about the people who don't make it into the history books, whose voices get silenced. Mm. And let's face it, the voices of women, including the voices of women in Greek myth, have been silenced. You know, we hear a lot yeah. about Zeus talking about this and that, and a lot about Apollo talking about this and that. Yeah. And, you know, I grew up with wonderful films like Jason and the Argonauts, in which it's mm-hmm. Jason going out and fighting skeletons and yeah. getting the golden fleece. You know, they say history is written by the winners and the people in charge. And historically, the people in charge have been men. Mm-hmm. And it's wonderful that women are retelling and reevaluating. And just looking at these stories with a different point of view and a different Mm. eye. And I guess that's what I aim for myself. It's not about saying my view is the only one. It's just about, well, let's ask that person over there who's never been asked before and whose voice hasn't been heard before. Let's see what their opinion is. I mean, you know, when you think about just to go to poetry for a minute, you've got Carol Ann Duffy's absolutely groundbreaking collection called The World's Wife. I love that book. Where, yeah. Isn't it amazing where mm-hmm. she reimagines the stories of all these famous men from history, but from the point of view of their wives? And I mm-hmm. guess that's what I'm bringing to the fates. Emily Dickinson said, tell the truth, but tell it slant. And so I'm bringing my own slanted well, what if this happened, actually? What's your favourite novel from this genre by another author that you've read so far? So many good ones. I'm not wimping out, but hard to pick a favourite. I think it's time we heard an extract. So this is the opening chapter of The Fates by Rose Blythe, and it's The Fates Speaking. Cruel fates, malevolent fates, haggard and heartless. So say the storytellers when speaking of us. You have heard the legends wherein we are vicious crones, three weird sisters who cackle over the meagre span of years we allot to men, smug in our own boundless ages. You have seen the sculptures portraying us foul-featured, our breasts dry folds of skin draping our ribs. There is bent-backed Clotho, 
gnarled fingers grasping the distaff as she spins the thread of mortal destiny. There is beak-nosed Lachesis, squinting an eye as she measures how long a single life will last. And most terrifying of all is Atropos, the inflexible, who severs the thread of life and allows not one instant longer. Since the first tale was told around the first hearthside, we have been silenced and slandered. We have held our peace for too long. Draw close. For the first time, we shall speak in our own voices and tell the plain truth. Before the gods were, we are. Oh, chills. I'm really looking forward to seeing where that goes. There's so much power there in those women, isn't it? And the fact that they're finally giving us an insight into who they are. That's very potent. I'm very excited to see where this story goes. Thank you, Rosie. Oh, thank um, you, Lorna. So it's coming out in May. May 2024 with Quercus Books. I hope that it is going to be in a bookshop near you and available oh, online from all the retailers. And it is the first time anyone's heard that. Thank you so much for sharing that exclusive extract. Uh, it's really nice, like this far into the podcast, to have like, you know, a bit of exclusive material out of all these, you know, authors and books I've been discussing. So thank you very much. Not at all, Lorna. And thank you so much for inviting me on. Thank you, Rosie. And thank you all so much for listening. We've had a lot of rebel harrowing goodness today and a lot of Zeus and Apollo roasting, which, you know, comes with the territory. Feel free to like, subscribe uh, to my YouTube channel. You can find me under Lorna Meehan or Rebel Heroines Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at rebel underscore heroines. I tweet and retweet on theme goodness often. If you'd like to get in touch, send me any pre-recorded poetry or drama on theme, please email me at lornaemehan at gmail.com. Fun fact, did you know ABBA wrote a song based on Greek mythology? Check out their song Cassandra about the doomed Trojan princess. It's actually very in keeping with the myth and is a really lovely song, actually. ABBA doing Cassandra. Who knew? Please share the podcast with anyone who might be interested and I'll be back next month with another group of powerful women, the golden apple goddesses. Ooh, Hera, Athena and Aphrodite, a heady combination of rebel heroine goodness. And we will also have some original poetry from the UK and across the pond. That's right. Rebel Heroines is going international. See you soon. Destiny awaits.